Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Thank you to everybody who listened to the episode that came out earlier. There was a short mini-episode on the murder of Riley Crossman, because not only was there a conviction in that case, the perpetrator who murdered Riley Crossman, Andy McCauley Jr., was sentenced yesterday, when um, on Thursday, for anyone who's listening to this as it's coming out live, to life without the possibility of parole, so there was a breaking news development, and I did a very short response, and I have at least three episodes talking about the the murder of Riley Crossman. I was about to say the disappearance, because that's how the case began, the disappearance, and then ultimately we learned that it was the murder of Riley Crossman, a story from here in West Virginia. So, big thank you to everybody who has been following along with all of these true crime cases and discussions, and you'll see from the title here that this episode is going to be done in a much lighter uh, style, because even when I was talking about some of the things this week with the Zodiac Killer, the murder of Riley Crossman, sometimes it does just hit you and you're like, holy crap, there is a lot of evil in the world, and I wanted to do an episode that wasn't meant to focus purely on the malicious acts of humanity. So that's what led us here today. But first, I would like to remind you guys that you can always download this show for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. And a great way to support the show, in addition to just listening to some more content, is to go over to Amazon.com and look at the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It's a novel murder mystery inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection, but it is fictional. And you can also visit the Teespring page, have a look at some of the merchandise, and remember, being weird is not a crime. The ZodiacKiller.com Facebook page posted something about the YouTuber Savannah Brimer, and she had done something about the Zodiac Killer. And I responded by saying I didn't really like her, and then as I typed that out, I was just even asking myself, why did I respond so quickly saying, I don't like the YouTuber Savannah Brimer? And if I had to put it into words, it would be that back when I did episodes on serial killers more frequently, I would go over to her channel because she would talk about them from time to time. And I found that something just seemed to be missing. Like she would have these 17 minute videos about serial killers where five minutes is just promoting her brand and her show saying that I attended this convention last year. If you use this coupon code on this website, then you can save 10%, and I'm selling this type of merchandise. And then five minutes was just, I like serial killers. Like, like I um, I know I shouldn't like serial killers, but, like, like I, I like them. And I know I don't need to like them, but, like, I always like learning about them. Like, I've always been, like, just like that for five straight minutes. And then there were just, like, three stories about a serial killer, which weren't the most revealing stories. I didn't find that that type of presentation was that helpful, but what truly amazed me was how popular her channel was. When I watched those things, she had about 500,000 subscribers. I just checked prior to um, recording this, and now she has over 600,000, so I congratulate her on her success. And yet... That's just my response from watching a handful of videos, but I got a response from ZodiacKiller.com saying maybe you'll prefer Kendall Ray. And Kendall Ray is someone who has been recommended to me millions of times by the YouTube algorithm. That's the first time somebody sent me one of her links. And that is the first video that I ever watched from Kendall Ray with ZodiacKiller.com responded by saying that 
there was a video um, that Kendall Ray had done in response to the claim that the Zodiac Killer mystery had been solved by the case breakers and the journalist Dale Julin, and it's Gary Francis Post, he was the Zodiac Killer. I wholeheartedly reject that theory, which I've said many times. I think that those people are either just grifters, or maybe they're just being really weird. I use the term social experiment in one of the videos, when they're like, if we just say that we solved the case, then maybe our website will get a lot of attention. That's my take on the subject. I mean, whatever happens in reality, we'll see how the story plays out. But it was the first time I ever watched a video from Kendall Ray. I just never crossed paths with her channel. I knew that she was very uh, popular, and I could see that millions of people were watching her videos. And I can see why. I mean, when I watched that Zodiac Killer video from Kendall Ray, it was just a model of clarity. She began with the canonical crimes, and then she went to the unconfirmed crimes, and then maybe an hour into the video, she finally started talking about Gary Francis Post, but just going step by step, making sure that the audience knew what she was talking about. I mean, I certainly don't do that here on Black Box Online Radio, and I've always said that from the very beginning, not to compare and contrast myself to everybody in this discussion, but I always wanted this channel to be geared toward people who were familiar with the cases so we could talk about theories or give genuine commentary, but I definitely was impressed with her presentation style, and also that she actually put out a lot of work obtaining information about Gary Francis Post, not just so like some guy like me who reads some news articles, watches some videos, gets on the Case Breakers website, reads the press release. Anybody can do that, right? But um, actually contacting people who worked in law enforcement and obtaining information that um, a lot of other videos had not shared, although, too, um, to be fair, she did put this one out about a month after the Case Breakers revelation. And when channels are as big as hers, almost always they have a team of people working behind the scenes, and they have credits. There's a producer, there's a writer, and there's a researcher, And in addition to the host who participates in all of those activities. But no, she had good stuff. I've meant to do more with Kendall Ray in the past, like not with her personally, <laughs> obviously I don't know her. But I wanted to just do um, an episode where... I was going to watch my first Kendall Ray video and then do a response to it, and I was all set to do that one day for one of these Anything Goes segments on Fridays. I was going to respond to her video on Jennifer Pan, who was involved with um, what I call, anyway, the Tiger Parent Murders. I did an old black box recording about Jennifer Pan. She was the girl who had, um, well, arranged for her parents to be murdered because not only were they controlling and not only were they uh, disappointed in her life choices, but her life began to fall apart somewhat, and she came up with this whole story about how intruders murdered her parents, and then she was tied to a banister, and then somehow she was able to pull her cell phone out of her back pocket. And she even demonstrated that for the authorities, about how she pulled out her cell phone with both hands tied behind her back, and they're like, oh wow, it seems like she's telling the truth. But what was truly remarkable about that story is they believe the reason why she was busted is her version of events did not match her father's. Her father survived the attack and was able to give a different side of the story, and they realized that there was an internal... Um, what's that word for someone who's like... who is um, part of the crime but on the inside? Not like an inside job, because that's more of um, something like the government betraying people. But more or less, it's like 
Someone who was in the house was an active participant in that, Jennifer Pan, the Tiger Parent Murders. And I really wanted to just watch a video from Kendall Ray and do a response. I thought it would be a really interesting way to do the Anything Goes segment on Friday. And in 2000-something-something, I watched my first video from Bella Fiore, and I believe she's Australian. I've always seen, like, two of her videos. I wanted to do an anniversary segment for the disappearance of Joan Rish, and I watched Bella Fiore's video, and it was pretty good. And I said I believe she's Australian because um, I remember thinking the whole time, like, I wasn't even listening to the information. I'm like, wow, her uh, her voice uh, sounds uh, just a little bit... I never heard anyone who uh, had a voice like that. And you shouldn't be distracted by that. That's nothing against her and another amazingly successful channel. Although those three people that I just listed off, very, very popular YouTubers. But when it comes to watching content on YouTube, I really gravitated away from the showmanship. And I just wanted to hear more about the findings. I wanted to hear more about the factual analysis, and even if it's fact-based speculation, I'm not afraid to speculate. I don't mind people speculating or giving their theories, and um, not to go off on a tangent, but I even talked about this in one of the videos when I did a, um, one about Terra the Android, and this person thinks that she was created by a guy named John Bergeron, who was a serial killer, and he's keeping people in this underground coffin, and he's recording their screams and then putting them onto a singing android. Do you remember Tara the Android? She would sing that song, I Feel Fantastic. Well, um, even if you don't, I, I think I just explained the nutshell version of that person's theory. There was this internet video and of some robotic woman singing, I Feel Fantastic. And that's what somebody thought. It was a sample of a serial killer victim. Is that true? Almost certainly not. And John Bergeron is not a serial killer, even. He's just the person who is credited with creating Tara the Android. Might be pronounced Tara, I forget. But I had just approached that with, somebody has a true crime theory, I'll talk about it. And there are very few subjects on this channel that are off-limits. Maybe if I think that somebody is dealing with some type of delusion, then I'm not going to do an episode on their theory, but that's only because I don't want to encourage them in a destructive way if they're not completely aware of their mental faculties. But other than that, yeah, I'll talk about somebody's theory and fact-based speculation. That's welcome. Or even if just somebody just has a larger, far-out theory, I'll talk about that. And someone in the comments section even said, Ned, you've talked a lot about the uh, Zodiac Manson connection, the Zodiac CIA connection. I absolutely do not believe that those things are accurate, that those things actually happen, that there's this type of um, involvement of Charles Manson, like he was the mastermind behind the Zodiac murders and Bruce Davis was the Zodiac killer. Almost certainly not once again, or the CIA committed the final two crimes in the Zodiac killer mystery. I don't believe that stuff at all. But if someone has that theory and they have a book out there, yeah, I will respond to that. But when it comes to a response, sometimes it might be um, not maybe the most welcoming to certain things, like the case breakers. So I began really gravitating away from the channels that were going to um, really play the show business aspect of this. And Rob Dyke did that for a long time when... I watched some of his videos in 2014, 
And at first I was totally impressed because he was doing like top five this and top ten that. And I loved those countdown websites like Dark Five, All Time Tens, List 25. There were so many of them. And they would tell you just these really small pieces and factoids about the um, the stories. And then they would just put them all together and like, ooh, what could be happening? There were just mysterious sounds in the night. And it was just so awe-inspiring and, and captivating. And captivating. I don't even know if incaptivating is a word, but whatever it was, it was incaptivating and it pulled you into that world. And I saw that Rob Dyke was doing the presentation like that, but he incorporated his personality into the videos and he's like center on the camera and he's telling the stories himself. And I subscribed to his channel early on, but after a couple years, I found that I was only going back to that channel just every so often, every now and then, and he even had to change his YouTube name because he was using his name Rob Dyke and his videos kept getting demonetized. Yeah, YouTube's a weird place. But I found that that type of show business aspect to it, when someone is just trying to be really creepy or something, and they're just trying to talk in this unnatural way slowly I just found that I didn't like hearing that anymore and it became a real breath of fresh air once I got pulled into the world of the Lord and Arts channel. So and back in 2016 and 17 I was truly just following that show all the time. I mean watching multiple videos a day during like the Monday through Friday stretch and John Lorden even mentioned something about that about how he thought that it was more engaging and in captivating. No, he didn't say that. It was um, perhaps fair and honest to present ideas in the natural way, like talking in a natural voice as opposed to someone who's just trying to sound creepy. And he said that his inspiration for doing that came from someone named Paranormal Lana. I've never seen any of her content. I don't believe that she's around anymore. I don't want to knock anyone if they want to talk in some type of mysterious way, but, or they're just trying to be, trying to present it as some type of horror story, that I'm okay with. What I'm not okay with is that wave of people who are trying to do the true crime comedy, and I was listening to this one on podcast, I don't even know the name of it, but there are these two girls and they're talking about this murder story, and then they're just like laughing at the victims and so on. I absolutely cannot stand that, let alone for the fact that it's a distraction, it's not fact-based. Where's the fact-based speculation that? Where's anything to do with ideas? That's just giggling at somebody else's tragedy because you think it's going to get you clicks on your channel that's never going to take off anyway. So that stuff's absolutely not welcome in my book. And I have to blame BuzzFeed's true crime page for that so clearly. I first uh, watched their true crime videos back in 2018 for this channel. I was trying to learn all about the disappearance of Jimmy Dunbar, and I saw that BuzzFeed had one that came to the top of my search results, and they were just making fun of the story so much. I was like, this is terrible, but because it's from BuzzFeed, they have an enormous amount of views. I am absolutely not a fan of that, and one thing, though, that I think is a little bit more on the gray area line is the true crime brewery stuff. Like, some people would do, like, the true crime things where they're drinking, like, alcohol. I think that that perhaps could be acceptable because it's just presenting the ideas in a different way 
or if you're not making fun of the victims and the tragic circumstances, then perhaps that is somewhat less, um, it's less of a problem. Like, if people are going to be trash-talking some serial killer and calling him a douchebag or something like that, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not even going to get mad at you. I'm not even going to criticize you in a negative way if you call a serial killer a douchebag or something. I think when I did the episodes about the New Orleans Axeman, there was this letter that was written after one of the crimes, the one that talks about how people need to play jazz music. Any, any house that has a jazz band playing will not be attacked. And I said that this person was an attention-seeking little bitch. Okay, I mean, that... And by the way, I do not believe the person who wrote that letter was actually a murderer. I think that letter was a total hoax, a total prank, a fabrication. So that's twofold about why I said that, and that's most likely what happened. Miriam Davis, author of the book The Axeman of New Orleans, has also been mostly in agreement and I did learn a lot from her, but just even comparing the stories of the victims in the New Orleans Axeman case to that letter about playing the uh, jazz music, it really doesn't seem like it's written by the killer for numerous reasons. And I have multiple episodes about the New Orleans Axeman here, and you can also read Miriam Davis's book. She's appeared on a couple different YouTube channels, including Most Notorious. Now, they have a pretty good uh, setup of Most Notorious. I like the interviews, and I was delighted when I heard my first video from the Most Notorious podcast here on YouTube. They interviewed Steve Hodell. That was the first one that I listened to, and he was um, you know, just on the podcast, and they were using the black box format. And part of me was like, I got to do something. I got to coin that black box podcasting. Back in 2017, when I launched this channel, I just had the black box on the screen because it's black box online radio. I thought it was a way to be, what, creepy and mysterious. That's another reason why I don't fault people for that. Even though I didn't end up being creepy and mysterious, I came across as someone who sounded like a robot. B-B-O-R, black box online radio. Today is November 5th of 2021, and... Like, I would talk like that, and, um, okay, there's a reason why those videos didn't become that popular, but I'm not sure why. What reason? Hmm. It's a mystery in itself. But, yeah, they have good content, engaging conversations and discussions and high-quality interviews. But when it comes to looking at the research process for certain YouTubers... Many of them want to incorporate their personality into the show, and they're just giving their take on the subject. And that can often lead to more of those giggles and laughter and not approaching it with the correct amount of sensitivity. It just turns into like, yeah, I like serial killers because <laughs> I like them. And uh, I don't... I, that's just, not only is that not entertaining, not only is that not engaging, not in-captivating... What really are you sharing by just, like, giggling along with the fact that you are wanting to know something about something else? It's just, why is that even funny? And I think that some people go over the top. I was watching this one girl. I don't even know her name. She was doing a story about the guy that was found dead inside of the gym mat, and the authorities simply believed that it was an accident. However... Some people think that he was a victim of foul play and the authorities were covering for him. And she was just laughing the whole time because she's still like, oh my gosh, the case has been reopened. This is the best news I've heard. And I get that you want justice, but why is that? 
why is there this need to show such a euphoric response to um, someone's true crime story that you were not directly a part of? I mean, I want justice for a lot of these victims, like everyone that we've mentioned so far. And sometimes in the true crime world, there are convictions. I was talking about the murder of Riley Crossman at the beginning of this episode. Her murderer was captured, identified, caught, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That does happen. With something like the Zodiac Killer mystery, it's a little bit more difficult. But the whole reason why I was talking about personality and so on is because when I was listening to the Lord Nart's channel earlier today, he talked about how Georgia Marie had covered one of his true crime cases, or they both had done videos on the same true crime case, and he said, that's just her style, I don't really find a lot of value in it, I'm paraphrasing that. But I think that's what he meant about how, okay, she's doing this presentation on it, and it's not the most in-depth and maybe not the most thorough, and it focuses more on her personality rather than the actual facts of the case. And I think that um, Georgia Marie does do a bit of that, and I don't even – I can't even exactly put my finger on it, but I get recommended her videos a lot. However, they are not the um, – they are not the – most in-captivating. Of course, though, you have to look at where does the information come from. I mean, if some people are just going to be spreading disinfo around the internet, well, what is the source of their disinfo? I will tell you firsthand, the mainstream media is terrible, and with many people out there who are on YouTube just using news articles, you try your best. You try your best, and you always hope that the content of the news article is accurate. But this year, I started a regular series on the disappearance of Donna Lass, which comes out on Thursdays. You can always like and subscribe if you want to follow along with these true crime discussions. And it's a regular segment. It was intended to be a deep dive podcast segment, but in all reality, it's just examining the case from different angles because, as I was talking about yesterday on the Donna Lass show, that a lot of the case file has not only not been made available to the general public, the documents are actually starting to physically degrade, and they might not even be able to make electronic copies of all of the documents in the disappearance of Donald Lass. And I was listening back to the episode that I did with Ann Penn on the Zodiac Killer interviews with the Experts series. Um, that's available on the Zodiac Killer channel. I'm also the host of that one. And she said one thing that I forgot to include in my Donna Lass episode, and that was that you can also experience trouble in the true crime world where Donna Lass was working in Stateline, Nevada. Her residence is currently in in um, South Lake Tahoe, California. They did redraw the border in 1980 between California and Nevada. There's a Supreme Court ruling about that. But the whole point is, they're two different counties in two different states, and then it becomes a battle over, well, whose jurisdiction is it? Bureaucracy, local politics, and somebody like Donna Lass, who was right on the border, where, as I said, her apartment is in California, she worked in Nevada, well, where did the disappearance actually take place? I mean, she disappeared. People aren't sure, did she just leave work on her own and get abducted in California, or was she abducted in Nevada? And this becomes, there's just this enormous discrepancy, and it's a real shame that that case file has not been made available to the general public when so many other Zodiac Killer documents are out there. 
and a large portion of the Zodiac Killer case file was made available to the public and then put on the internet, and you can evaluate those types of files. So that would be the absolute best thing, right? But something that I learned from John Lorden was to look at the press releases that are put out by law enforcement. If they have videotaped press conferences, you can watch those online. Sometimes they put them out on their own websites and it's exclusively available on the law enforcement website. Sometimes they're even on YouTube when they share these press releases about um, what's going on in their investigation, even though they always hold things back. But the reason I mentioned Donna last was I'm not from South Lake Tahoe or Nevada. I'm a West Virginian on the other side of the country. And I was trying to read on Donna, uh, read about Donna Lass and her disappearance from September 6th of 1970. And I found that every single news article had something different about it. Even when I was going through comments on message boards, which uh, isn't a good thing to do, they also have discrepancies. Like, not all the info is consistent. Some news articles are saying she disappeared on September 5th, others say September 6th or September 7th. It's like, now wait a second, isn't that kind of important? When did the disappearance actually take place? When was the last sighting of her, actually? I mean, I've since learned that it's, we believe Donna disappeared sometime between 1.40 a.m. and 2 a.m. on September 6th of 1970, because you have to cross-reference them. The whole point is, though, news articles are not always accurate. And for the most part, 98% of the time on this channel, I have a ban on CNN. Anything to do with CNN and the true crime world, I try to make it 100%, but yeah, every now and then I do read an article from CNN. The problem is, though, not only is it CNN, it's just like the epitome of the mainstream media, and their content is extremely watered down, it's just you can go to a local news website and you'll find a true crime article about the same subject that is twice as long, that is twice as detailed, and containing twice as many facts. CNN's content was so flimsy, so skimpy that I just decided this stuff just isn't that good. And absolutely, you're going to want to read stuff from the local reporters who are on the ground, not somebody who's sitting in the... um. New York Bureau or wherever it is, and not to say that they don't send people on the ground. They do, but I just found that their true crime content was not all-encompassing. It doesn't cover as much territory as a lot of the other local stations, but they still have discrepancies. That's why the press releases from the police department, the press conferences, that can be something if you don't have access directly to the case file. Even if you have stuff in the case file, you're going to get conflicting things, conflicting witness statements, and People aren't always going to say the same thing twice, and maybe the authorities will even correct somebody. Hey, you said this one statement two days ago, now you're saying this one, and it creates this entire, entire problematic situation, because who's really telling the truth? I will give credit, though, to anybody who is a fan of the true crime world, because they actually want to know the truth. They're actually trying to figure out what happened, and it's not just like politics where they're latching on to somebody's side of the argument because that's the side that they've chosen to play, and they just want to find people who are saying what they want to hear so they can agree with it. No, people in the true crime world 
want to know the truth. They want to know the facts. They want to understand what happened. They want to understand how it happened. And I think that comes from empathy. I, I genuinely do believe this, that number one, they're empathizing with the victims. Number two, they want to know about how other people are thinking, which is heavily connected to empathy. Like you understand other people's emotions, but you also want to understand the thought process because that's what we do as human beings. We connect with different types of information and so on. But to talk about how you dismiss certain types of information, back when I did those episodes on Gabby Petito, I was um, talking about Gray Hughes because somebody um, left a comment on one of them saying, you know, don't be like Gray Hughes or something. And as a YouTuber, I thought Gray Hughes was absolutely excellent at creating 3D models and reconstructed images of the cases. And he's a guy who will pull up, you know, Google Maps and go through it on a live stream and find out, okay, this looks like the possible route that the killer would have taken to discard the body. And he will put in an enormous amount of thought, time, and effort into the things that he has created. What I believe we were talking about was sometimes he can get a little bit nasty with the audience and say things like, Oh, I wish you would, people wouldn't ask you ask questions like that. I told you guys not to ask those types of questions. Don't ever do it again. And there are other ways to remove that um, that type of material from the discussion, because a much less popular channel would be the Tate LaBianca radio program hosted by Brian Davis, and he responds to that type of. Um, material, like dismissing ideas that you don't believe belong in a conversation. He does it more in, um, what's that word? Combative way? I'm thinking of a word, there's a word for that. Abrasive. He does it in an abrasive way. I mean, combative and abrasive aren't really the same thing, but I was thinking of the word abrasive. And if you ever do listen to the Tate LaBianca radio program, it's a deep dive, um, segment on the Tate LaBianca murders from 1969. A lot of things happened in 1969. The 60s were really weird, particularly 1963 to 1969. Absolutely. But he'll just say something like, that person has no credibility. And someone will be like, well, hey, can you say anything more about them? Like, no, that person has no credibility. They're a liar. They're a fraud. I have nothing else to say about them. You can just do that type of dismissal. But when somebody asks a question that he doesn't like, he'll just say something like, why are you asking that question? All you do is eat 15 cheeseburgers a day, and that's all you do with your life. And then it's just, the, the discussion is over. And I think everybody in the audience understands exactly what he's talking about. Uh, I mean, that's the abrasive way. I've really found that that type of um, thinking and those, those types of behaviors don't make your channel popular. But here's something else, though. Not every person who's putting out content on YouTube actually wants to just have a million subscribers. So they don't even want to be an enormous um, – they don't even just want popularity as their bar for success. Instead, they just want to put out content that – they believe in, they want to talk about things that they're fascinated with, and they want to genuinely contribute something to the discussion, and they want to just share material that they have, or 
people are going through the research process. And Brian Davis, as I said, from the Taylor Bianca radio program and his co-host, Tana Lothenberg, they do the research. They'll go through 5,000 pages of um, court documents and so on. They're going through this research journey because they want to learn the truth about something. Well, this is how you share the truth with people. This is how you share your findings. And to do something like a radio program, or a U- which is on YouTube, podcast, YouTube video, whatever you want to call it, this is how you clue people in on what you found. This is how you make the truth available to other people. And sometimes it's commentary. Sometimes it's your take on the subject. But this is how you share your findings. And of course, people will write books. But the problem with books is 78% of the time you have to pay for them. 22% of the time they're free. By the way, there's a great book on you on Amazon.com called Killer on a White Horse by Ned Dahan. Yeah, okay, moving on from that now. So as far as um, some other true crime YouTubers that I became a big fan of, in 2018, I discovered Danielle Hallen's channel, and I used to say that I used her as an afterthought. Like, if I were truly familiar with a case, like I'd spend, you know, a couple weeks learning about something, I would then like to watch one of her videos and then just hear her perspective on the subject because I think that she shares her ideas in a very particular way. She's also the host of Crime After Crime with John Lorden, which I think is – um, I'm – I, I I think it's like in my top level of YouTube shows about the true crime world because I've never quite heard a show like that before. On Crime After Crime, you have two hosts, and they see who can tell the better story. And I didn't know exactly what they meant by that, but they both research true crime cases about a particular theme or subject, and then the audience gets to vote on whose story did you like better. I just, just never heard anything like that before. And... In 2018, about six months after I learned about Danielle Helen's channel, I learned that she was also going to be doing that show. And when I watch her on Crime After Crime, I understood her channel a little bit more. She'll start kind of slowly, and then it will just escalate, and her storytelling um, presentation just gets better and better and better until it reaches the end. It's kind of like a solid, straight line just going upward or maybe like if you have like a line graph or something i know isn't isn't that um isn't that just so amazingly entertaining to hear ned talk about line graphs but it's just going straight up okay off the charts and so on but i found that john lord and the co-host of that show um does his presentation style in a different way where he'll start out you know he'll just tell the story kind of goes up then it goes down and then he'll throw in a twist at the end it's not consistently going up it's sort of a one-two punch okay here's something really good now wait a second oh you thought i was done well here's the two punch here's the uh second style second piece of um of absolutely mind-blowing information and i find that both of those things are done in a really nice balance but when i did the episode on the disappearance of lee cutler I found that Daniel Hallen was one of the um, few people who just had 45-plus minutes of uh, discussion about the um, disappearance of Lee Cutler. And I just thought that her presentation style worked really well for that. Someone who's just incorporating commentary, her thoughts on the case, plus the facts and everything. And it's all just going <laughs> like that line graph going right up off the charts and so on. Another person whom I've turned to a lot has been Stephanie Harlow, and I think that she is a very um, 
a very good YouTuber in the same way that Daniel Howland is. Like when not Stephanie Harlow did her video on um, Dahlia DiPolito. I always want to say DiPolito because I knew someone with that last name, but they pronounced it Ippolito. Yeah, but Dahlia DiPolito. I, I heard part one. I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot wait for part two and so on. And I absolutely hope you guys will check that out. Um, Stephanie Harlow has also done some very good things about the murder of Missy Beavers from Midlothian, Texas. And she's also stopped by this channel and she's one of the uh, few people that I've been talking about today that I've actually had the pleasure of corresponding with and discussing some things. She um, responded to my episodes on Charles Manson. She's a big Charles Manson buff and so on. So there are lots of great people out there that you can listen to and connect with. But the question is, who is the best true crime YouTuber? I probably would have to say David Gold. Why? He is one of the few people who has ever done a YouTube video about me. So, yeah, okay. But, um, no, in all seriousness, um, when it comes to being, like, a YouTuber, I think it was in 2018, somebody referred to me as a YouTuber, just somebody in the comments section, and I was just so caught off guard. I was like, yeah, I was putting content out, but it was just those black box recordings. Like, there was literally just a black box on the screen because it's black box online radio. And I'll say something about that in just a second. And they're like, you think I'm a YouTuber? I mean, I know I put stuff out online, but at the time, that recording had two views. One was the person who left that comment, and the other one was me. And I was like, I mean, just because I put stuff out, does that make me a YouTuber? No, that's like the guy who just made some video of a mallard in a pond and got nine views. Is he a YouTuber? Oh, I was watching that one, um, I think back in 2006, and I just wanted to see if I could find some videos of ducks, mallard specifically, and I saw that there was this video of a duck in a pond and it had nine views, and I was like, wow, they're really putting everything out on, on, on YouTube like that. But there's a reason for that. But the first point is that I don't necessarily think that someone would fall into that YouTuber category if they just put out, you know, a couple videos about ducks in a pond. That's more just um, uploading content without the um, flow of an organized show and so on. Maybe yes, maybe no. You could if you want. I mean, to each his own, right? But in 2006, um, I was in college and I was walking on campus and it was really rainy that day. And there was this little creek that went through our campus. And there were these two mallard ducks, and one of them was about to be washed away, the female, you know, because you can see very clearly the male has all the colors, right? And the female is brown, except for that little blue uh, patch in the back. And the female was being washed away down the creek. The water is flowing so roughly, and the male mallard took the female by the neck. Like, he put his beak around her neck, and he's holding her back, keeping her safe, like, so she doesn't get pulled away by the flowing water. And I was like, wow, I've never, I've just never seen ducks do that before. And then he pulled her, you know, to safety, and I was like, wow, nature is cool. And so I watched a couple videos about um, mallards in the pond and so on, and also just to see what was around, because back in 2006, YouTube was very, um, very much new territory, and I remember the first video that I ever watched, and that was from the musician Victor Wooten, a musician that I still listen to from time to time. I was trying to learn how to play the bass guitar, and I was reading all about 
you know, the base online. And then I just clicked on something and it brought me to this website called YouTube. And it was Victor Wooten doing a base tutorial. And I was pulled into YouTube ever since. One guy in college, because I, I was a freshman in college in 2006 and uh, all the way to 2011. Yeah, I graduated one year late. That's what you do in West Virginia. But he, um, one guy in college, even called me YouTube. He's like, that's your nickname from now on. Your name is YouTube because all I would do is just sit around and watch YouTube. And I know it sounds really dorky to say it, but I was a little bit ahead of the time because now that's just so normal, so commonplace. And yeah, some people just devote their time to watching large amounts of YouTube. Just back in 2006, I was one of the only people um, who did that. But yeah, people stay up all night watching YouTube videos. Totally normal. But I find that um, I watch a lot less of the content associated with um, YouTube that I did before because, as I said, I was watching that video on a guy playing the bass. And from that point onward, I was mostly about music. I loved finding musicians on YouTube that I had never heard before. And even if it's just somebody in their garage with a guitar and an amplifier and they're just playing whatever song they want to play. I find that I really don't watch a lot of those videos anymore because YouTube has now turned into a production company, more or less, where people can have their own studio. If they want to attract more views, they get professional equipment and so on. So I miss that era a little bit, but at the same time, I'm, I really do appreciate how people have put out content in somewhat of a more attractive fashion, or perhaps maybe just a higher budget fashion rather than more attractive. I was listening to the show The Rational Mail here on YouTube, hosted by Rolo Tabasi, and he talked about how his background was in design prior to being a YouTuber. He had a lot of, or his education was in design, so he's like, everything in the studio is designed for a reason. Everything in my thumbnail is designed for a reason. It's all coming from this place of calculation rather than just some guy in his garage playing an electric guitar and you can see the little 10-watt uh, amplifier and so on. Okay, that was a good era at the time because that's what I believe um, YouTube was. Like Once it actually took off, some people say like YouTube was supposed to be a dating site and so on, but once it actually took off, it was you had 10-minute videos and you could just upload 10 minutes of content. If you were a director, then you could upload more than 10 minutes of content, but that's what it was supposed to be like. Okay, here's my video of me playing the guitar in the garage, or maybe it's a video of somebody walking down the street and then they trip over a log and everyone starts laughing. Feel blog. That'll work. And um, all of that stuff would come together because it used to be you'd have to go to a website that was just filled with a bunch of trash and so on. You'd have to go to a website that just seemed really sketchy. Usually the background would be black. Maybe the letters would be in neon green or orange or something like that. And it's meant to be all real spooky and so on. And it's meant to just be like, you know what side of the internet you're on now. This isn't the dark web, but this is perhaps rather dim to uh, be fair. But then once YouTube came about, there was just a way to organize all of that. All of these things from these um, 
really weird websites got pulled in and I became the weird part of YouTube, and all of these things that are rather harmless and benign got pulled in. But what happened was, to the best of uh, my recollection, everybody just started listing themselves as a director, and the 10-minute rule was rather just arbitrary. So you could uh, op upload content more than 10 minutes, and at the time I was really into wrestling like WWE, ECW, all of that. So I found that they even started uploading full wrestling matches all online, and I was just a big fan of that. And of course, they're longer than 10 minutes. One time I even found a pay-per-view that was a couple months old, but it was uploaded onto YouTube. And it's like this two-hour pay-per-view event that people had to pay money for a month ago, and I watched as much as I could before I fell asleep that night. That stuff really just revolutionized the way that people were sharing content on the internet. But then, around that time as well, blogs really took off. And Google had Blogspot, Blogger, and I even had this one class in college. It was called Advanced Technical Writing. Um, yeah, well, uh, some bad experiences happened in that one, but I don't want to share them with you because they're not relevant to this discussion. But one of our um, challenges was to create a blog using Blogspot, and we would only... The only people who ever read those things were in the class because we're just talking about different tech tools and so on and different things that you can use in the um, on the internet to share information and so on. That was the focus of it. But blogs really took off for about four years, and I even read them from other people, and there are all these ways to do blogging. And when I say four years, I mean blogs existed well before 2006. And they had zines as well, like the e-zine was meant to be like magazine, but your zine is like a website that you have made yourself. They had all kinds of website builders. But the whole reason I'm telling you this is in about 2010, 2011, podcasting really revolutionized the way we would share content. And people didn't want to read when they could just hear it in audio version. There are a couple reasons for this. First, some people, like me, are audio-based learners. I retain information that I hear so much more powerfully than I do information that I read. So um, I think that people can also use the audio when they're out walking. They can download things like using Launchpad 1 and take it on the go anywhere and anyhow, right? I mean, there's a reason why those things are keeping up today, but it's quite difficult to read a blog when you're out jogging and so on, or maybe driving. People really just have this had this desire for audio, and let's not kid ourselves. People love radio. There's a reason why people are so um, caught up with podcasts purely on audio. There are no images. Just downloading the audio, taking it on the go, why I'm talking about things like the Tate LaBianca radio program, or how I thought it was really cool that Most Notorious just had the blacked-out screen, not only because I did it. There's a reason why, and that is because radio is not a dead art, but it's one. It's an entertainment form that is morphing into something else. And I think it was back in 2014, I'm just guessing, when there was this iHeartRadio concert that was uploaded online. I was watching it video, but um, version, but it's from my heart radio. And in the intro, they featured Billy O. Armstrong, Billy Joe Armstrong. I guess I was talking too fast. Billy Joe Armstrong, the guy from Green Day. And he said that radio is the last 
connection that the music industry has to the past. Like being heard on the radio is the last aspect of the older days of music that we still have because, you know, it used to be they had records that you would have to buy. They, they would sell like hotcakes. You get it because it's round like a hotcake, like a pancake and so on. The records would sell like hotcakes, right? And then they would play them in the jukebox, and those things are all still present. I was just walking around Target, and I saw vinyl records for sale, and vinyl is now outselling CDs, and I'm not surprised at all. But yeah, people like radio. Radio is very passionate, and I always had a bigger connection to radio than I did television, even when I wanted to be a filmmaker and so on. And I think a lot of people go through this phase when they want to make movies, but I really just wanted to get started in radio first. And I wanted to um, do that for a couple of reasons. The first is that it was more about the voice. It's more about the ideas. And some people would even tell me, like when I would be given presentations and so on, they're like, wow, you know, you sound really good, but you just look stiff when you're standing up there. Well, like, why, do, why are you looking at the way my shoulders look or the way my spine looks? Shouldn't you be focusing on my presentation and my ideas and what I'm saying? And what about the content and so on? What about the actual stuff that I'm talking about? Not just about how I look. So, yeah, I think I definitely gravitated toward uh, wanting to do something like Black Box Online Radio, which is purely a podcast. I mean, you, YouTube video, you want to call it that because they're now images hardly an actually an actual radio show but that's what i think um attracted a lot of people to that they wanted to live in a world where radio didn't die but it got morphed into another type of uh form and that was podcasting not to mention that people just simply like to listen to content when they're out jogging when they're in the car i love listening to something in the car and i use a little bit more terrestrial radio these days the morning commute and the evening drive they will um, always keep radio alive, and at my day job, we play the radio in the background throughout the entire building. That That's great, and that's terrestrial radio. It's not even Sirius XM. That stuff is all welcome. I don't think that radio is going to disappear anytime soon, but there are aspects of it that have, are morphing into a different time in our lives. And the last thing that I'll share with you in this episode today is that... I put out those episodes in 2017 and 18, and I think I actually went all the way into 2019 when I was doing just the black box recordings, where there was a black box on the screen, no images, it was just black box online radio. Today I will be talking about another Zodiac Killer suspect, like, yeah, and like I would just um do things in a very kind of flat voice, and it was meant to be... um a podcast. It was meant to be just about the ideas, right? But I wonder why so many people didn't like that there was a black box on the screen, because so many channels do that. So many channels put out content with just a black box on the screen, and I thought if they did it, then I could do it too, and call it Black Box Online Radio. Well, here's the problem. Like I mentioned Most Notorious did it in one of their episodes. They already were famous. People already like their content. People already followed that show, and they expect it to be a podcast. But really, it's um, the Howard Stern show. When I would just listen to Howard Stern on YouTube, I everything I've heard from Howard Stern has been on YouTube, actually. Except when he's appeared on television. 
I don't have serious satellite radio or anything. So many clips from the Howard Stern show were uploaded with just the black box on the screen. And I thought, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, like so many other channels were doing that. Yeah, Howard Stern was already famous. People know what they're expecting, let alone that's a radio show. Yeah, you can watch Howard TV, but that's a radio show. It's already a famous radio show, so you don't need the, the video. Or if there isn't a video up there, people aren't going to complain. When they come on YouTube and listen to some unknown channel called Black Box Online Radio, they're still expecting some type of imagery and so on. But I think that, you know, times are changing. Of course, you see the show is done in somewhat of a different format than it was back in 2017, 18, and 19. And even though those episodes for those three years weren't the best, and there's a lot of repetitive things, and I sound like the way I was talking about Savannah Brimer, like, like this, like, like that, what we can say about this is, the thing to say about that is that, oh, you know, being very redundant and repetitive and not truly understanding the material as well as I should have, jumping into some subjects prematurely and making a couple factual errors, a couple, right? Not, not, not too many, just a couple, right? At the same time, I still had an amazing experience. Firstly, just connecting with you guys in the comment section. Secondly, just looking back at those times, like, you know, you th I think about it in seasons somewhat. The summer of 2019, I mean, every single day just putting my heart, mind, and soul into Black Box Online Radio. What am I going to talk about tonight? And once I got to the winter of 2020, I was living in a different place, but... Still, the best part of my day was just drinking a Rockstar Energy drink and getting ready for Black Box Online Radio. I absolutely love that time in life. And this channel's only going upward, onward, and upward, continuing. No plans to slow down. If anything, pl the plans are going to be much like terrestrial radio, shaping into a different program. Throughout the next year, there might be not only video-based stuff, but perhaps a little bit more appearing on camera. Um, if I can make sure that my internet doesn't suck, I will do some things like live streaming. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully this um, channel will just keep evolving in some ways. And you guys have been so supportive. Thank you to everyone who read the book Killer on a White Horse. Thank you to everyone who bought a t-shirt or a coffee mug. And even just people who like, subscribe, share the share the content on Facebook. Jerome has been all over that. The French Wrecking Crew, you are awesome. So I appreciate that so much. Well, you've heard me talk about the true crime YouTubers that I've uh, connected with over the years, and I even said the best one. But um, also, just to share some things about YouTube, thank you for listening to this Anything Goes segment, and I will see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.